Chapter 7 Anna Mayhem The Quest Okay, my life's really weird. I'm the first to admit I'm not the most normal kid. I'm not a superhero or anything quite that cool, but I do know several. Let's see, there's Pharaoh, Cool, Scalar, Hex, Yin Yang, Dirk Claymore of the Clan McJagger, Santa Claus, and, um, Steve. Pharaoh and Cool are part of a superhero team called the Evolutants. Pharaoh, also called the Prince of Beasts, is a hyper-evolved lion with dreadlocks for a mane. He's wicked strong and built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. If Arnold was a lion who walked upright, wore denim coveralls, and spoke like a Rastafarian. That makes sense, right? Cool is an elastic giraffe. When I say elastic, I mean that dude can stretch high enough to high-five a 747. Yeah, that would be dangerous. It would probably frighten the passengers, too. Like, who wouldn't be scared if some cartoon-looking giraffe with a huge crest toothpaste grin and big shiny horse... Uh, giraffe shoes? Is that a thing? You know, tried to high-five their plane mid-flight? He's impressionable, so I won't suggest it. Cool is hyper-evolved, too. Aside from stretching, he can shapeshift. He's great at it. I've seen him impersonate Elvis, Mr. Rogers, Bob Ross, Batman, the 60s version. He even does the funny little Vogue dance. And a hundred different animals. It's amazing. Provided you can get past the fact that he's always yellow with brown spots. Every person, every animal, yellow with brown spots. I will say, a yellow T-Rex with brown spots is still freaking terrifying. And he's scary good at the T-Rex thing. Scalar is also a man-beast sort of dude. He's a Dwayne Johnson-sized minotaur, but with the head of a bison instead of a bull. Unlike Pharaoh and Cool, he wasn't hyper-evolved. He's a human prince, but an evil shaman cursed him more than a thousand years ago for falling in love with the wrong woman. He and Pharaoh have an odd relationship, not really a bromance, more like some weird high school rivalry. They're constantly flexing on each other. Honestly, Pharaoh's stronger. But Scalar's a natural-born warrior. If they ever really threw down, it would be like the Punisher versus John Wick. Pop some popcorn and pick a side because it's anybody's game. Hex is a dinosaur from another superhero team called Team Rex. She's a Tyrannosaurus Hex, if I understand correctly. Basically, she's a teenage Tyrannosaur who's also a witch. She's also kind of a b um, blunt speaker. Oddly, her accent makes her sound like she's from somewhere in New England. Not exactly New York. More like Boston. Park the car in Harvard Yard, you know? Hex is an odd bird, but she's, um, how would she put it? Wicked powerful. Her feet rarely touch the ground, since she prefers to hover or fly. She can control lightning with her bare hands, make herself and other things invisible, control minds, she calls it charming, and even bring dead plants back to life. Unfortunately, you can't reanimate animals. The brain activity becomes an issue. Brain death is forever, unless you're lucky enough to have a backup of the patient's brain handy. But come on, this is the real world we're talking about, right? Fun fact about Hex. Her dead grandmother's spirit follows her everywhere she goes. A time travel experiment gone wrong sucked them both through a Tem portal, and now they're constantly together. Sounds awkward to me, but whatever. I thought she was nuts at first, hearing her talk to her grandmother like she was there with us. Only she can see or hear her. Who knows? Maybe she really is nuts. Did I mention we're on a quest? It's wild. 
I feel like that little guy with the Robin Hood hat in the old Zelda game. Take this sword, cause shit's about to get real. And good God did I ever get a sword. It's called the Sword of Helianthus. The deity of heat and light, Helianthus, blessed the sword. So great job naming it after him. The hilt looks like gold. But unlike everybody's favorite wedding ring material, it's lightweight and stronger than steel. The crest of Helianthus is engraved on the Killian block. That's the cross piece where the blade meets the handle. It's like a flaming sunflower with a Freemason-looking eye at the center. I'm generally not into flowery crap, but truth be told, it's pretty badass. I have a chainmail t-shirt with a glowing key woven into the chest, a black leather jacket and leather biker pants, a magical water skin that never goes dry, and black leather boots of levitation. Gotta keep the ensemble consistent, right? King Solidago Altissima tasked us with the quest. He wasn't there personally, but Aconitum, his magic advisor, wizard, warlock, whatever you want to call him, was there. Aconitum was a creepy dude, to say the least. He wore a drab brown robe that concealed most of his face with a monk's hood and was the perfect blend of all the classic villain tropes. His eyes were the color of ash burrowed in deep leathery sockets, like twin tarantulas lurking in tunnels of flesh-colored webbing. He sported a long wizard's hat of a schnoz ending in a point that would have made Pinocchio do a double-take. A set of thin, deflated lips that looked like a cocoon after the butterfly flew away framed his sullen mouth. Stringy, graying hair, as clean as an old bicycle chain, hung loosely around his pale, ghoulish face. His hands were so gnarled, laying them flat appeared to be an impossible task. That was all right, because he seemed perfectly content to wring them together repeatedly in classic villain fashion whenever he spoke. His old leather sandals betrayed filthy, calloused feet ending in long, jagged toenails. When he sneered, smiling obviously wasn't something Aconitum's face was accustomed to, it was painfully clear his dental hygiene was worse than his foot care routine. You'd think a wizard could use a little magic to tidy himself up a bit. Our benefactor found my friends and me celebrating a recent victory at our long-standing tavern of choice a tiny hole in the wall in the rough-and-tumble mining village of Artemisia called the Prancing Peony. Dirk, who happens to be an honest-to-God ninja, was drinking blue agave tequila from one of Scalar's boots. It's a long story that ends with something like a bad punchline. You really don't want to hear it. Anyway, Dirk's full name is Dirk Claymore McJagger, of the Clan McJagger. Yep, he's as Scottish as Highlands, golf course, and kilts. His outfit is a sublimely strange blend of Highlander warrior meets ninja. He wears a kilt, wee black ninja booties, and the traditional black pajama top. His hair and beard are a shade of red that, well, let's put it this way. He's basically Hagrid if he was a Weasley. In my opinion, he's too loud to be a ninja. He carries an old Claymore broadsword instead of a katana. He also carries nunchucks. They're actually a couple of lengths of tree trunk connected by an anchor chain, but they do the trick. His magical bagpipes would blow your freaking mind. They're made from a dragon's bladder and alicorns. Those are unicorn horns, in case you didn't know. They sound like Sir Sean Connery after a few tankards of ale. Rest in peace, Sir Connery. Other than their ability to speak, I haven't been able to figure out what's particularly magical about them. When I say them, I mean him. His name is Angus. Not that talking bagpipes aren't freaking magical, but Angus seems to be more of a hindrance than help most of the time. Ninjas are supposed to be stealthy, but whenever Dirk's sneaking around, Angus either complains like a Scottish C-3PO 
or breathes loudly, which sounds like Scalar farting with a harmonica shoved in his butt. Please don't ask how I know what that sounds like. Oh, wow. Uh, Dirk, Aconitum, Quest. Yeah, I squirreled there, didn't I? The Quest. Dirk was drinking from Scalar's boot when Aconitum showed up, looking around the room like a frog at a fly convention. Pharaoh noticed him right away. I could see something was up, so I pulled him aside. Everything okay? I asked casually, trying not to be obvious. Pharaoh raised a bushy eyebrow and nodded in Aconitum's direction. That man smell bad. Maybe he's in a grunge band? I asked. He looks old enough. Pharaoh isn't exactly quick on the draw when it comes to humor. He's not unintelligent, but his wit is drier than Arizona in the summer. Nah, me mean he smell like a bad man. I nodded. Yeah, he looks like he's up to no good. We watched him through the usual crowd of Friday night patrons, a volatile mixture of miners, farmers, vagabonds, and thieves. Want to see what he's up to? I asked. Before Pharaoh could respond, Hex floated toward the cloaked man and blocked our view. What is she doing? Pharaoh wondered, even though she was clearly talking to Aconitum. Fewer than half our party gathered on either side of a long wooden table near the center of the room. Hex was at the bar when Aconitum slunk through the door. Yin-Yang was playing darts with Cool in a dimly lit corner. Santa and Steve were hustling some farmers at a card game known as Black-Eyed Susan. Dirk and Scalar threw back shots of some god-awful-smelling alcohol. Pharaoh and I, as inconspicuously as possible, stared at the back of Hex's head. We watched for several minutes, waiting for some indication as to where the conversation might be leading. Our patience was rewarded moments later when Hex turned in midair, causing us to avert our gazes guiltily, and brought the conversation directly to our table. Sir, how about the Pharaoh commented a little too nonchalantly. You two can give up the innocent act, Hex muttered. I've told you before. Yeah, we know, I interrupted. Eyes in the back of your head. Pharaoh adjusted his seat while Hex and Aconitum sat down across from us, ignoring Dirk and Scalar's drunken hijinks. Hex motioned toward her new friend, who hungrily eyed an untouched platter of fried Quaker ladies. Aconitum is here on behalf of King Solidago Altissima. He's searching for champions to rescue the king's son from an evil coven of witches known as Noisetie de Sociedes. There's a substantial reward, and he'll provide us with gear and a map to guide us. To Aconitum, who was still eyeing the Quaker ladies, I said, Dig in if you're hungry. The warlock pulled the bounty towards him and began to devour the platter's contents, pausing only to summon Viola, the barmaid, to the table. Ale, he ordered through a full mouth. Tankard! As she scuttled off to fulfill his request, he shouted, On their tab! He motioned around the table with a wild sweeping gesture, and then went back to stuffing his face. Hex stared at him for a moment, clearly disgusted, but continued. The queen doesn't know her son is missing, and the king wants to keep it that way. Sending the king's god on such a quest would prompt the queen to ask questions the king would rather not answer. I knew better than to ask Aconitum, who hadn't spoken to anyone other than Hex and Viola, any further questions about the king or the circumstances of the prince's assumed abduction. The king was a private man. Questions made him less than comfortable. Nobody in their right mind made the king less than comfortable. I looked at Pharaoh, who nodded thoughtfully. All right, Hex, you've got our attention. Go on. Hex's tail was long, but her tail was short. Get it? Tail? Tail? Oh, God, I'm turning into my dad. Scratch that first line. Forget I said any of it. Please. Hex's story was a short one, 
but it was so full of intrigue and betrayal, it could have been a Shakespearean play or a Mexican soap opera. Solidago Altissima's kingdom, the once lovely candy tuft, was in all sorts of agricultural distress. He turned to a coven of witches to resolve his problems. That's like going to a loan shark to resolve financial troubles, or a crossroads demon for, like, anything. The piper always demands payment in the end. The king apparently made a deal with the twelve witches and their silent partner. Once the witches solved his problems with magic, he arrested them for practicing witchcraft instead of paying up. I'm still not clear on what the agreed payment was. Dick move if you ask me. All attempts to incarcerate the witches obviously failed, and you can probably guess how the rest went down. Not only did the crop start dying again, but the king's only son, Prince Ranunculus Goldenrod, vanished as he slept one night. Thirteen deadly flowers were left on his pillow, a clear message as to who took him and of their intent. Apparently, the king discovered the flowers. He told Queen Ursinia that their son went on a hunting expedition with Sir Scabiosa Atropoperea and would be gone for several days. It had been two days since the prince's abduction. With each passing day, the king knew the likelihood of ever seeing his son alive again grew increasingly unlikely. Atropoperea, also known as the Black Knight or Blackamoor's beauty to the village maidens, camped out in the swamplands to the south of Candy Tuft. No one but knights hunting goblins or ogres dared set foot in the swamp, let alone spend a night or more. But there the Black Knight remained, faithfully awaiting word from Aconitum. He would lead whatever party was brave, or perhaps foolish enough, to accept the warlock's proposal. Hex finished her story with a sideways glance at the warlock. Absolutely no one could compete with her level of stink eye. She was the grand master of the craft. Would you say that was an accurate retelling of your proposal? Her words dripped more sarcasm than aconitum dripped drool and God knew what else. The warlock nodded and involuntarily gagged while mumbling, which ended up sounding something like a cat hacking up a hairball. He was a class act all the way. I had a hard time imagining him in the king's court. Hex shook her head ruefully. So, what do you think? I'm in if you are. I looked at Pharaoh, his brows furrowed in deep thought. What do you say, big guy? I asked. Nah, I think we should ox the others, he mused. I looked around the room at the others. Dude, Scholar and Dirk aren't in any condition to make decisions, but they're always ready for a fight. There's a reward involved, so Santa and Steve will be in. There's a child in danger, so Yin-Yang would go regardless of the reward. And Cool would follow you into the twisting depths of Pothos itself. I'd say the three of us can safely make the call. Pharaoh shook his head, his dreadlocks swaying disapprovingly. Nah, man. We do this how we always do it. We'd a vote. I sighed. Pharaoh was a rules guy through and through. There would be no getting around his lawful good nature. Fine, I said after a moment's consideration. Hey, Scalar, Dirk. The two turned to look at us, bleary-eyed. How would you feel about a quest? We'd get to rescue a little boy. They stared at us, processing what they'd heard. There's a reward, I continued. Still no response. The pair's eyes were glazed over like bloodshot donut holes. And fighting, I added. Oh, hey! A quest would be just grand! Dirk interrupted, throwing his hands in the air, inadvertently tossing his drink into Scalar's eyes. Barely phased, Scalar picked up a dirty bar towel that was cleaner than his face and sopped off the drink before nodding. See, compadre, a quest. 
he seemed ready to say something profound, his eyes taking on a somber cast. Sure, why not? I turned to Pharaoh triumphantly. There you have it. Five of nine in favor of the quest. Majority rules, yes? Pharaoh narrowed his eyes, looking like Santa and Steve just cheated him at Black-Eyed Susan. You pull this crap every time, and me always let you get away with it. He finally shook his head and shrugged. Fine, we go rescue the prince. But now blame me when them witches turn you in a toad. Dirk turned, a twinkle in his bloodshot eyes. Have you laddies ever tried frog's legs? Almost as yummy as haggis they are. We waited a few hours for Dirk and Scalar to sober up, listening to Angus complain about Dirk's clear intolerance of alcohol. The evening finally ended in a short-lived bar fight with the farmers whom Santa and Steve had apparently cleaned out of every last pakira. Pharaoh ended the fight by buying the farmers drinks and sending them home happy. Still broke, but happy. Yin-Yang and Cool returned to the table shortly after we made the decision to go on the quest. Cool, as always, was agreeable to whatever Pharaoh thought was best. However, Yin-Yang, the quintessential Gemini, wanted to look at everything from both sides before committing. Yin-Yang was typically at odds with everything, including himself. When I say him, I mean them. Yin and Yang, a pair of bears whose actual breed I don't know, were fraternal twins. They were nearly identical twins, but Yin was as black as pitch, and Yang was as white as newly fallen snow. Yin was a cleric, and had mastered the ability to control and blend into shadows. He couldn't create complete darkness, but he came damn close. Yang, on the other hand, was a monk who could create spiritual lights so bright they could turn your retinas into tiny charcoal briquettes. He, like his brother in his shadows, could become invisible in the midst of his self-generated light. Most surprising was the fact that his light, no matter how bright, generated absolutely zero heat. Yin and Yang's third power, or second to each of them, I guess, was to combine their body mass to become a much larger black and white bear closely resembling a giant panda. In addition to their mystical abilities, the pair was as stealthy as Dirk believed himself to be. They, like one of Santa's farts, were silent and deadly. Individually, they were dangerous enough, but when they worked as one, they were a powerful force to be reckoned with. There's some life lesson in there, but I'm telling a story here, not expounding philosophical insights. Yin-Yang had one clear weakness. As balanced as his powers were in his combined form, he was a bit indecisive. Left, right, up, down, war, peace, there was always a brief internal debate. Yin and Yang were, for all intents and purposes, polar opposites. I'm doing my best to avoid the obvious polar bear joke. Generally, whatever direction had the moral or ethical high ground was the direction he gravitated to. Thankfully, both of their respective orders served Helianthus. I can't imagine the turmoil serving two gods would create. Yin-Yang sat quietly at our table, meditating as Angus berated Dirk for not having the fortitude of a dragon's bladder, which, if I understand correctly, can handle alcohol better than any other living being. Considering it's the liver that processes alcohol, I'm pretty sure Angus is full of crap. Dirk's the only one obstinate enough to actually carry on a debate with Angus, so I let them banter. The bear, bears, you know, finally agreed the rescue of a young prince was worth the risks a quest imposed. Deeply nodding with hands together in praise, he was in. Santa and Steve, as I predicted, were automatically in for the loot. Once Scalar and Dirk were sober enough to travel, we made our way to the swamplands of Capitula. 
Aconitum, of course, led the way. For as much as Aconitum looked like he would blow apart if you sneezed too hard around him, he was spry. The dude moved like a teenage boy on prom night. I guessed he had a vested interest in getting the prince back in one piece, because he was all about getting us on our way. Artemisia is a small mining town on the southern coast of Capitula. Though the distance to Sir Scabiosa, Atropurpurea's encampment was only about seven SLAs, a specific leaf area is about a half mile. Navigating the perils of the swamp took several hours. In addition to the poisonous Laurentes and the man-eating Calencos, there were ogres and goblins to contend with. Thankfully, the goblins are cowards and generally shy away from parties as large as ours. Ogres, however, are ill-tempered pack hunters. Our little band of nine, ten if you counted Aconitum, eleven if you counted Yin-Yang twice, was still a fair target. We never saw any ogres either. Just kidding. We'd just entered a small clearing about a half an SLA from Sir Scabby's camp when we found ourselves surrounded by a nasty-looking ogre horde. There were more than twenty of the brutes, each carrying an uprooted tree as a club and standing at least a foot taller than Pharaoh. I'm surprised none of us smelled them before entering the clearing, especially Pharaoh. One of the ogres, the shortest of the crew, though built like a grain silo, began shouting. I'm assuming he was shouting at the other ogres because he was speaking Yoyishkis, the regional ogre dialect. Anyone speak ogre? I asked, just loud enough for my group to hear. He said to kill the skinny ones first, capture the strong ones for labor, and save the fat one and the child to eat at tonight's feast. Santa laughed jovially, patting his belly. Then he patted Steve on the head and laughed even louder. <laughs> child. Ho, 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 Steve muttered sarcastically. Though Hex was the undisputed reigning champion of the sarcasm game, her eye rolls alone earning her legendary status, he was nearly her equal. Santa, yep, the real Santa Claus, was clearly not intimidated by the ogre's desire to feed on him and Steve. Steve, on the other hand, seemed uncomfortable with the idea. Maybe he was just irritated at being called a child. Steve was somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 years old. While he didn't look particularly young to us, to a giant being like an ogre, he probably looked like a child when compared to the rest of our party. Santa, while not as physically imposing as Pharaoh or Scalar, or as skilled a fighter as Dirk or Yin-Yang, was still a force to be reckoned with. He was a big man, to say the least, and not just his girth. He was heavily bearded, physically hardy, and carried himself like one of the ancient Norse gods. His laugh could turn the tide of most disagreements, and being a druid, he had some magical abilities that were almost on par with Hex's. With a touch of his nose, he could transform himself into a column of red smoke that looked like a lit emergency flare. In his smoke form, he could induce coughing spasms in his foes, pass through small spaces like keyholes under doors, and yes, even down chimneys. He could see auras, which was useful when determining whether someone was bad or good, and he had this uncanny ability to know whether the enemy was asleep or awake. In addition to his innate magical abilities, he also had an enchanted sack of carrying and an endless supply of coal. He could even enchant reindeer to fly, which would have been super useful if there were reindeer in Capitula. Santa was as formidable a hero as any I traveled with. Fun and slightly embarrassing fact about everyone's favorite saint? Santa almost exclusively orders milk and cookies at the Prancing Peony. Dirk makes fun of him, but always steals a cookie or two when Santa's not looking. 
Unfortunately, Santa is extremely lactose intolerant. Any form of dairy gives him explosive gas that could power a blacksmith's kiln. Steve, as I might have mentioned before, is an elf. Don't call him an elf. He hates that. He's actually an elf, E-L-V-E. Technically, he's an elf, too. But E-L-V-E stands for Elite Lethal Villain Exterminator, which frankly sounds much more badass. Steve's one of the best in the biz. Don't let his size fool you. His fighting skills are on a level that rivals Hex's level of sarcasm. Even Scalar, the 1,000-year-old warrior, can't match Steve's moves. If anyone could keep up with him, they might invent a new martial art called Steve. Steve didn't even wait for anyone to try and talk to the ogres first. At the first sign of aggression, he vanished behind Santa, which of course caused the ogres to laugh almost as hard as Santa, who, knowing what was about to happen, laughed harder still. A moment later, Steve emerged with two unsheathed daggers that looked like swords in his tiny hands. The next 15 to 20 seconds were little more than a blur. The elf literally leapt from ogre to ogre, slicing throats and jamming his daggers up through the armpits of the surprised giants, piercing their enormous hearts. The ogres dropped like dominoes. As Steve approached the final unfortunate ogre, Dirk leapt forward and shrieked, The last one's mine, laddie! Dirk's longsword cut an arc through the air, whistling as it separated the last ogre's head from its hulking shoulders. The monster's final expression was utter surprise and confusion as it rolled out of the clearing. A moment later, a knight dressed in the finest armor any of us had ever laid eyes on walked into the clearing holding the ogre's massive head under one of his arms. He nodded curtly at Aconitum. He didn't appear to be a fan of the warlock. Well, my good fellows, he began, smiling as he looked us over. To Hex, he added, And, milady, my name is Sir Scaviosa Artruperperea, knight of His Majesty King Solidago Altissima's royal court and commander of the royal guard. But you, my friends, may call me Atro. Atro, it seemed, was a real knight's knight. According to the legends, he was a regular old Sir Galahad. Or maybe Sir Galahad was a regular old Sir Scabby. Does it really matter? He was a genuinely good dude. The king chose him to command the royal guard for many reasons, bravery and chivalry being the basest of them. Not to mention he looked dashing as hell in his armor, like he was born to be a knight. Even Hex, who was pretty well immune to all men's charms, seemed to be the tiniest bit taken by him as he spoke. She might even go as far as to say he was charming. Our newest companion invited us back to his camp, where he casually tossed the ogre's head onto an impressive pile of Laurenti and Kalinko hides, as well as a few additional ogre heads and fresh goblin corpses. Sir Scabby had been busy while he waited for Aconitum to return to the camp with a party worthy of his quest. Clearly, he was capable of handling things pretty well on his own, which made me wonder about what awaited us on our quest ahead, and if he actually needed us. Sir Scabby's camp was too small to fit all of us comfortably, so most of us found a spot among the trees on the perimeter of the tiny encampment, well within earshot of the bold knight. Within this wall of flesh, brave ones, there is a soul that in all sincerity counts thee its creditor for joining this dangerous mission. Aye, tis true that some of us may not returneth from what may very well be a, st a suicide mission, but rest assured, I will lay down my life for any or all of thee. The young prince must be us rescued. 
Each of thee is now mine brother and sister in arms. We share a common goal, and together we will accomplish the otherwise impossible. He stopped and raised a cup to us. The receptacle was empty, of course, as our new friend had no spirits on the premises. He was there to save the prince, not get drunk. Jeez, how could you not believe in him? He was a regular old Captain America. Well, more like Captain Capitula. That has a nice ring to it. Sorry, squirreling again. After his rousing speech, he stood and popped the lid off a crudely manufactured crate he'd been sitting on and began taking out items wrapped in some sort of woven burlap. His exodus from the castle had clearly been covert. He'd brought few supplies, so as not to raise any suspicions in the queen or any of her servants or advisors. He shook his head ruefully as he began sorting through the wrapped packages. Tither art more of thee than I hadst planned for. I most sorrowfully regret I didst not bring enough weapons for each of thee. Dirk stepped forward, drawing his longsword with his right hand and clutching his dagger with his left. Worry not, laddie. I never leave home without me blades. Steve held up his massive daggers, congealing ogre's blood dripped lazily onto his hands. No need here, either, he agreed gruffly. Cool held up his two forefeet and fashioned a series of weapons between them. He shifted from a club, to a sword, to a mace, and so forth, before finishing by connecting them and forming a large, seamless, polished shield. I make my weapons as I need them, bro. Even Hex, who seemed to hang on each of Captain Capitula's fancy words, held up her magical staff with a smirk. My magic is my weapon. Finally, Pharaoh held up his clenched fists. Me need nothing more than these, man, he said, without an ounce of arrogance. He was right. His fists were the veritable hammers of the gods. Sir Scabby smiled. The revelation pleased him. Well then, to Pyrrhus I shall test enough weapons after all. The first package Sir Scabby unrolled was a set of axes. More accurately, it was a huge double-bladed battle axe and a pair of wicked-looking hatchets. He looked at the remaining members of our party and finally passed the bundle to Scalar, who was beyond pleased with the gift. Scalar was quite polite when he wasn't drunk. He offered a slight bow. His bow wasn't of the deep and rigid nature you might see in many Asian cultures. It was a short dip of the head and shoulders, his face still fixed on his benefactor, as old-school European noblemen would do. Sir Scabby matched the nod and then returned to the contents of the crate. Next was a massive warhammer with a huge flat surface on one end of the head and an eight-inch spike on the other. The leather-wrapped handle appeared iron-forged, adorned with huge, flawless diamonds, rubies, and emeralds, the colors of Christmas. It was no mistake, of course, when Atro offered the hammer to Santa, who accepted it graciously and immediately began testing its weight and balance. Watch where you swing that thing, Steve growled. Save your aggression for the ogres. Santa, always the good sport, laughed heartily and patted Steve on the head. Oh, don't be such a party pooper, Steve. Besides, shouldn't you be cleaning your daggers? Steve glanced up at his huge companion. Their size difference reminded me of a rhino and an oxpecker, the little bird that sits on the rhino's back and cleans its ears. I kept my personal observations just that personal. I didn't want my head joining the pile at the edge of the clearing. I like them, bloody, Steve muttered. Let's my prey know I mean business. Santa leaned on the tree nearest to him and raised his hand slightly in mock surrender. I can see how that would be effective. Damn right, Steve nodded. 
Sir Scabby had already returned to the crate when the exchange ended. He pulled out a long wooden bow staff and handed it to the quiet and contemplative yin-yang. The panda-ish bear's bow was deep and solemn. Amazingly, Sir Scabby matched it perfectly, which couldn't have been easy in all his armor. Finally, he pulled two smaller burlap-wrapped packages out of the crate and looked at me. To purest I shall test one to spare, he conceded happily. Yin-Yang cleared his throat lightly before stepping apart and becoming his twin selves. Sir Scabby grinned. Well now, isn't that a clever trick? He looked at the two packages carefully, weighing options in his head before handing one of them to Yin, as Yang held the bow staff. Yin unwrapped the package gingerly. Something clinked within its folds. He let the burlap drop at his feet, exposing a lethal-looking chained morning star. The handle was more than a foot long, connected to a fist-sized ball of spiked iron by a chain about eight inches in length. There was a leather strap at the end of the handle, so Yin slipped his hand through. He was pleased with the gift, as his second bow in his many minutes indicated. Sir Scabby bowed back again. Not even the slightest shudder was visible, though the weight of his armor should have made a bow that deep and prolonged nearly impossible. Dude must have had an insane core workout routine. The knight then turned his attention back to me. The final item in this small arsenal cometh from mine own personal collection, to tunes well to creative spirits. I sense thee art one of the finest bards in this land. For someone who tends to have a lot to say, I found myself speechless. Cool finally clapped me on the back with one of his massive hooves and declared, He does weave a pretty exciting yarn, bruh. Sir Scabby nodded. I receiveth a feeleth for these things, akin to aura readings, but more of a quiet instinct than a bold vision. He handed me my package. If you were paying attention earlier, then you know what was in it. The mighty sword of Helianthus.